Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, Season 2, Episode 19, It All Falls Apart. It would be hard to find a historical figure who lived his life with more curiosity and zest than Joseph Howe, the Nova Scotian newspaper editor, writer, politician, and the man more responsible than possibly anyone else for winning responsible government in British North America. We touched on how briefly the other week in noting his speech at that Darcy McGee organized shindig for Canadians in the Maritimes in the autumn of 1864. And we noted that Charles Tupper attempted unsuccessfully to invite him to the Charlottetown conference. He couldn't come, so let's find out why. The years since the victory of responsible government had been a, a mixed bag of disappointment and success for Howe. He was part of the first responsible government in Nova Scotia, although not its leader. His attacks on the, the governor had annoyed too many in officialdom to allow him that honour. That said, though, many in the colony still thought of him as the leading reformer in the governments of the 1850s. It helps when you can write so eloquently and often and when you were such fun on the stump, regaling audience with, with classical references one minute and ribald humor the next. Like many of his contemporaries, Howe became an ardent advocate of railways and pushed hard to develop them in Nova Scotia. And this also included the Intercolonial Railway. He had been in London in 1862 with Leonard Tilley and with the representatives from the Sandfield MacDonald government and he too had been upset by the Canadians' seeming abandonment of the issue. All through these efforts, though, Howe also had one more goal, to win advancement within the wider empire. He wanted not just to be a leading Nova Scotian, but a man of the British Empire. He lobbied colonial secretaries for appointments in the colonial office in London or in other outposts of empire. Why, he mused, should Britain not use the talent it had in its colonies? Why should mediocre men from London be advanced while the stars of the colonies are passed over? For how it was akin to the early Roman Republic when citizenship had been restricted to only those who lived within the city of Rome itself. Why not, as the Romans later did, extend citizenship to the rest of Italy and then all the empire? This surely was the future for Britain as well. Finally, in 1862, a British government listened and offered him a post to an imperial commission. It wasn't grand. You might even call it a bit shabby. It was a spot on the Imperial Fisheries Commission. But Howe didn't blink. Instead, he accepted the sort of half-honour right away and quickly made the most of the chance. The only problem was that Howe was still in cabinet as provincial secretary in Nova Scotia, and he couldn't do both jobs at once. So we asked that he delay beginning his appointment and proceeded to fight the next election as a sort of lame duck figure, hoping, no doubt, to help get the Liberals re-elected in Nova Scotia before leaving. That's not what happened. By this point, the Liberals in Nova Scotia were in deep trouble. Howe had seriously aggravated the Catholic voters by a series of missteps. And then he also made the mistake of attempting to modify the franchise. 
Back in 1854, the reformers had eliminated the property qualification to vote. But now, Howe believed this to have been a mistake, claiming that it had rewarded the lazy and slothful and allowed the powerful and wealthy to buy up the votes of the poor and exert their own outsized influence. Now, there may have been something to his argument, but it hardly looked good, and it allowed Tupper and the Tories to run on a platform of liberty and freedom for all. Howe and the Liberals lost the election badly. Howe went off to his role on the Fisheries Commission, then a defeated man. Still, he knew a good deal when he saw it, and the Fisheries Commission was tailor-made to provide Howe with a good life. He had always loved traveling. As a newspaper editor, he would travel from one side of the colony to the other, selling subscriptions and collecting fees, staying in taverns, and learning about the people of Nova Scotia over a glass of whiskey. Now, as fisheries commissioner, he extended his range. The commission was created as part of the Reciprocity Treaty with the Americans because the two nations had agreed to open up the inshore fishery of each coast to the other nation. But there were limits, and these included the mouths of the rivers. So now someone needed to carefully delineate and map all of the disputed areas. One American commissioner came on board, and Howe acted for Britain. By the summer of 1863, the British had fitted out a man of war with a crew of 180 and set Howe off to northern Newfoundland to map the coastline. Howe also used his role to travel extensively all across the northern United States, ostensibly to speak on behalf of the treaty and to negotiate with officials, but let's be honest, also to have a heck of a good time. Howe loved to travel and discover new places and people, so he did. In 1863, he traveled to Washington and met with Lincoln himself, and then with Seward, the Secretary of State. He visited the Virginian battlefields where his own son had fought on the side of the Union. As a father, he saw no romanticism in the horror of war and the chance to be shot, as he put it, quote, by persons you never saw and cannot personally hate. To be left on the battlefield till the ravens pluck out eyes and wild beasts tear the flesh to be wounded and left upon the field, till heat and thirst aggravate what the bullet or the bayonet did. All these things show what war really is. In early 1864, he was back in New York and Boston at at Harvard attending public lectures and dining at the literary club with leading lights like Ralph Waldo Emerson. On his way back home to Nova Scotia, he stopped in Portland, Maine, and typical for him, found himself caught up in the sorry plight of a young working woman who was robbed. He organized a a public subscription on her behalf. In the autumn of 1864, he did make it back to the dinner organized for Darcy McGee's Canadian troop, but he was already booked to be on the man of war and mapping out the river mouths, and so he couldn't accept Tupper's invitation to Charlottetown. It might have been a fateful mix-up. Charles Tupper instead took other Nova Scotian liberals with him to Charlottetown and Quebec, and they ended up signing on to the Quebec resolutions. Joseph Howe, though, wasn't so sure. He was back in Nova Scotia by early November of 1864, in time to welcome the Nova Scotian delegates back to the colony. When public meetings were held to debate the Quebec resolutions, the organizers invited Howe to sit on the stage. But it was an odd sort of non-position because of Howe's status as an imperial official. 
he could make no public statement for or against the scheme. Some claimed that Howe was in favor of Confederation. Hadn't he worked for the Intercolonial Railway, and didn't he give a glowing speech welcoming the Canadians that summer? Behind the scenes, though, Howe stewed. In reality, Howe thought Confederation to be a raw deal for his home colony, and he soon intended to let the public know, albeit anonymously. In fact, in Nova Scotia, as in the other maritime colonies, public suspicions about the scheme had been growing ever stronger. It wasn't that there weren't many who supported Confederation, there were. But a growing number of public figures and newspapers also began to question what this would mean for Nova Scotia, whether the terms of the deal really did adequately compensate the colony for all it would lose. In early January, Howe launched himself into this debate by publishing the first of a long series of blistering attacks on the Quebec resolutions, or, as he described it in his first article, not the Confederation scheme, but the Botheration scheme. Howe's anonymous attack gives us some of the reasons why someone would oppose Confederation, and although I'm a proud Canadian, I have to say he makes some very good points. According to Howe, Confederation threatened to rob Nova Scotia of the responsible government it had only just won. Quote, Prior to the introduction of responsible government, Downing Street claimed the authority which it is now proposed to erect at Ottawa. How did we like that? Why, so little that our best men gave the flower of their lives to the struggle by which the system was changed. Now, we in Nova Scotia possess and exercise these high powers in as full and ample a measure as the freest people on the face of the earth. Were they really going to give up those powers? Nova Scotians now appointed all public officials in the colony. How could the tiny number of Nova Scotians to be in Ottawa have any control over this, especially as they would be divided by party and so, in reality, be only a small part of any government? The whole scheme fixed a Canadian problem and gave too little to Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia was flush with good times, with an abundant fishery, with mines and with commerce. Why enter into a union with Canada with its many fractious divisions, its history of internal conflict and rebellion? Did they not burn down their parliament in 1849 and try to abandon Britain and join with the Americans? Quote, are not the Canadians always disturbed by religious feuds and secret societies? If the Canadians have outgrown their constitution, well, what of that? If they are in trouble, let them get out of it. Howe made many other points about the financial disaster that awaited Nova Scotia, the terrible ruin a high Canadian tariff would make of Nova Scotian commerce. Others picked up on his arguments and extended them further. Charles Tupper, the premier and Tory leader, a man committed to pushing the Quebec resolutions through his parliament, read the public mood and decided to hold off. He wasn't abandoning his position. He did, though, opt to delay. When the governor read the speech from the throne in early February of 1865, and in the midst of a, a rising tide of criticism in Nova Scotia over Confederation, the government made no commitment to put the Quebec resolutions to a vote in the legislature. Perhaps some thought this meant the battle had been won. This certainly is what Joseph Howe hoped and expected. He was certain that he and others had done 
good work and declared that in Nova Scotia, the Quebec resolutions and the botheration scheme were as dead as Julius Caesar. So, pretty dead indeed. If we move over to Prince Edward Island, we find the situation just as dire for Confederation, if not more so. The divisions over the Quebec resolutions blew the reigning Tory government apart. The premier of the colony was Colonel John Hamilton Gray. You might remember that he was one of the two John Hamilton Grays at the Charlottetown Conference. Gray was a soldier, a steady man of honor, not a wit, but someone who believed in doing his duty. Born to a loyalist family who had settled on the island after the American Revolution, Gray had spent most of his life in active service in the British military in India and South Africa. He came back to the island in the early 1850s only to leave it again at the outbreak of the Crimean War. Gray was a devout Protestant and was part of that group of Tories who brought the Conservatives to power on the island in the midst of disputes over the place of Bibles in schools. He was also only a year before the Charlottetown Conference, part of a group of Tories who pushed out the Premier Edward Palmer from office, with Gray taking over as Premier. This matters because the personal rivalry with Palmer was only to grow. Gray became a firm supporter of the Confederation scheme and spoke glowingly about it after Quebec. However, he came back to a colony that was much more lukewarm at best toward the scheme and one of the leading critics was another man who had been at Quebec along with Gray, his frenemy, Edward Palmer. Late in December of 1864, Premier Gray read the tea leaves and didn't like what he saw. A colony and even a government that did not support the Confederation scheme, even though the leader, that is, Gray himself, did so. Could he really remain Premier under these circumstances? Now, a less military man with a a less firm sense of honor might have said yes, but Gray felt not. He offered his resignation before the year was up. This left the Tory government in disarray and divided. They actually invited Gray back in January of 1865, but he refused. So they instead invited in another man to lead them, one whose views on Confederation were ambiguous very much in line with the fate of the whole scheme in British North America at that time. Okay, so that's two maritime colonies down and one to go. The final colony, New Brunswick, mattered most of all. For it was in New Brunswick that voters would get a chance to have their own say on the scheme. The people of New Brunswick would be urged along in their skepticism of the Quebec scheme by a gifted politician whom they knew well a former colleague of Tilly's, a wealthy, successful lawyer who liked to rail against the establishment. That is, James Alfred Smith. The few photographs we have of Smith show him thick and pudgy around the neck in an age when being overweight was a sign of wealth. Not the opposite as in today's historically mixed-up world. Smith was born to a loyalist family of merchants who had done well for themselves in New Brunswick. He grew up amid privilege and yet became a critic of the compact group of families who tended to rule New Brunswick out of Fredericton. He became a lawyer and then entered politics in the early 1850s alongside other reformers including Leonard Tilly. Smith enjoyed life too much to have been a fan of Tilly's prohibition law, 
but after it was sent packing, the two men served in governments together through the 1850s. Smith was one of those reformers in the colony who could easily mix high-minded principle with personal self-interest. When serving as Attorney General, he managed to pass a law through the legislature whose purpose seemed entirely to be to assist the commercial interests of one of his clients. The governor, Arthur Gordon at this point, disallowed the law immediately and sternly rebuked Smith. The colonial secretary back in Britain also admonished Smith in tones even harsher than Gordon's. But Smith was having none of it. Adopting the stance of injured pride and tarnished honor, he took the colonial secretary to task. Quote, Your situation and mine are widely different, he wrote publicly to Newcastle, the colonial secretary. While you enjoy a high imperial position, I but fill an humble place in a small province in a remote part of the empire. Your voice and influence are powerful, mine are weak. Nevertheless, my character and reputation are as dear to me as yours are to you. Uh, he might as well have been speaking straight from a Dickens novel at this point, celebrating the honor of any man, regardless of how high his station. Yes, it was a bit rich given his own status, but certainly inside the empire, Smith was writing from the fringes. But then he made this also about responsible government. I am responsible for my official conduct to the legislature and the people of the province and not to you. Why not leave me to deal with the parties to whom I am responsible, uninfluenced by the uncalled for expression of any opinion by you? And all of this about a bill that was almost certainly meant to benefit one of his clients. So yes, Smith could lay it on thick. This was the man who led the charge against Leonard Tilley and the Confederation scheme when the Confederates returned to New Brunswick late in the autumn of 1864. Smith had left the Tilley government two years earlier out of his opposition to the intercolonial railway scheme. He wasn't against the railway itself, but he firmly opposed public funds being used to build the railway. Private business should do it on its own. So, as you can guess, he was unlikely to be impressed by what some others saw as the big win of the Confederation scheme, the guarantee for the building of the Intercolonial. Supporters and opponents of the scheme organized a series of public meetings which turned into raucous affairs. These were perhaps the main reasons Leonard Tilley opted not to just pass the resolutions through the legislature when he returned, knowing as he did that he had to face voters by June of 1865 at the latest. Possibly with the experience of his ill-fated prohibition bill in his mind, he decided instead to allow the public to have their own voice. He asked the governor to call an election scheduled for late February of 1865, and then he got to work to win the vote. Unfortunately for Tilly, he seems to have done a poor job, and there were more than enough opponents to make his life difficult. The antis, in the first instance, had an easier time of it. All they had to do was oppose the scheme and join together in their opposition. It didn't matter that different people opposed it for different and sometimes even contradictory reasons. Some because it threatened New Brunswick's independence and financial interests. Others because they didn't like the federal nature of the scheme and wanted an even more centralized, unified government in the new nation. Still, the arguments from the antis were powerful. 
Smith not only campaigned against the Quebec resolutions, he also had his own positive vision to offer too. While the Confederates had the intercolonial railway linking the colony with the interior of British North America, Smith promised New Brunswickers a western extension railway, joining up the colony with rail to the American border. And if the Confederates offered access to the British North American market, Smith instead offered to do everything in his power to give the colony the American market by extending the Reciprocity Treaty. That neither of these promises, especially the, the latter, was in his power to give did not seem to matter. By the time polls opened on the 28th of February, it was already not looking good. And several days later, when the polls closed, Tilly got his bad news. The opponents of Confederation had won a majority of seats in the new parliament. Smith would soon form a government of his own, working alongside the governor who had rebuked him earlier. No, Gordon was not pleased with this. If Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island had delayed the scheme, sensing the need to pause in the midst of opposition, New Brunswick seemed to go one step further, killing Confederation outright. As Tilly and his friends across the country assessed their chances after the loss in New Brunswick, the only consolation was the realization that the Antis would now have to form a government. This conglomeration of politicians who had come together in opposition to a scheme now had to determine if they stood for anything. And there was some reason to believe that they didn't and that the new government might not last long. Maybe, just maybe, Tilly and the Confederation scheme would get another chance in New Brunswick. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. In the next episode, we'll see what else 1865 has to offer. In the United States, the Civil War finally draws to a close with a a dramatic finish. The province of Canada itself debates whether to go ahead with Confederation, notwithstanding the New Brunswick setback. And little old Prince Edward Island is going to show us that events in the red soil colony could take one more odd turn. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please do consider becoming a patron for $5 per month. You can help sponsor the show and earn uh, my unending gratitude. If that's too rich, then why not head over to wherever you get the podcast and leave a five-star review. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.